0: The Bible reading for this message is taken from 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 1 to 10. It'd be great if you could push pause now, go and have a read through uh, those verses, and then come back. So it's 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, from verse 1 to verse 10. The jokes about how bad a year 2020 has been are starting to fly around now. There's plenty of memes and gifs that are being thrown into the mix on Facebook and WhatsApp. Of course, as much as we would like to joke about how bad it is, there's also the reality of how bad it really is. For some of you, the reality is getting closer and closer. And for some of you, that reality has become fully realized and has set in. For some of us, The difficulty of life has been around long before 2020 even began. You've been going through trials, you've been suffering, you've had hardships and the like. Today we're beginning a series about what life looks like for the person who is trying to trust God, remain faithful, and work out what God-honoring behavior looks like under less than ideal circumstances. We are living in tough, complex and demanding times. And this is how we're going to do it in this series. We are going to look at the character and the nature of God through the experiences of some of the individuals and their story arcs in the Bible. You're going into the back half of 2020 in a way that you have never experienced before. This trial, the trial that each of us are facing now, will put your faith to the test. And the question that I want to ask you goes beyond how will you respond. If I ask you how will you respond, I know you. I know that you will give a good Bible answer, probably the correct answer and certainly a true answer. I want you to ask yourself today is this. How are you going to behave? How are you going to behave as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. You see, right now, God is not interesting in hearing about your faith. He wants to see it, working itself out in the way that you live your life, going ahead on this hard journey. He wants to hear your faith in your prayers as you cry out to him daily. He wants to give you his power in your weakness to embolden you. He wants to give you grace So that you can carry on. Right now he wants to say to you, you know, whoa, hold on a second. Grace? He wants to give me grace to carry on? Grace? Isn't that what saves me? You might be sitting and thinking, hang on, I don't need grace right now. Doesn't God have something else in his quiver? Isn't there something else behind the counter, marks 2020 or COVID-19? Hey, I'll even take pandemic, God. Can you give me something for pandemic? I don't need the grace bottle. I need something stronger, like a lot stronger. Friends, what I want to tell you this morning is that actually what each of us needs is the grace bottle. And our verse that's going to launch us into the next few weeks comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where Paul, I'll talk about the story in a second, says that Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I think that there's a lot of uh, misconceptions about grace. I remember a few years ago, I was meeting with somebody and trying to share the gospel with them, and they had a lot of questions. And so I gave them a book about faith and about faith in the gospel. And I met with them after a week, and they said, listen, Jason, can you just explain? I've been reading through this book. I've actually read it through twice, but nowhere does the author ever explain what is the gospel. Now, grace is one of those words that we throw around all the time. If you spent any time at church, you would have heard this word grace. But we tend to not go into much detail about what it is. It's sort of just this blanket statement of grace. And what I've discovered over the last couple of weeks is that grace is not always grace. At least it's not always grace in the way that you and I have been taught to think about it. That actually, the writers of the Bible use grace in a number of different ways, not in one singular way. And so that's what we're going to be opening up over the next couple of weeks. What does it mean when Jesus says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And when you hear it like that, you think to yourself, hang on, maybe that is what I need. Maybe for the back end of 2020 and going on to to the rest of my life, what I need is this all-sufficient grace where in my weakness, God's power is displayed. And I want to tell you this morning, that's exactly what you need. It's exactly what each one of us needs. All right, so let's open this thing up a little bit. Let's talk about grace. God's grace, it's the most powerful force in the universe. I would argue that it is the most beautiful concept in the whole Bible And it is the most wonderful aspect of Christianity. Grace reaches you where you are, and it takes you to where God wants you to be. It has the power to do something that nothing else can do. To transform you at the causal core of who you are as a human being. In your very nature, in the depths of your heart, That's where grace comes, that's where grace arrives, and it takes you and it changes you. And grace doesn't stop there, because not only does it take what was once dead and now make it alive, it then brings about a metamorphosis of you as a person. Not only does it raise you and change you, but what we're gonna see over the next couple of weeks is that it also sustains you for the whole of life. You see, grace, is God. Grace is God present in your life and at work in your life using his power in your weakness to bring about his purposes for you. So starting today, we're going to slow right down as a church and we are going to grapple with grace. So our launch verse 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 Jesus said to me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power can rest on me. So, here's the backstory to this verse, so that you can begin to see that this is a verse uh, that was uh, for Paul, but it's a verse that's also for us, which is why Paul includes it in his letter the way that he does. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and it'd be really helpful actually if you just go and read the whole backstory for yourself. Um, Paul is, uh, his integrity and his ability and his CV is being called into question. So right back in chapter 11, you gotta go back to verse one. Paul says, "I, I hope that you'll put up with a little bit of foolishness. So these guys called super apostles are saying, they're questioning Paul's legitimacy. And so Paul kind of has to go into this mode that he doesn't really want to go into. He calls it foolishness, and it's to defend himself against uh, the, the, the illegitimacy of the super apostles and what it is that they're accusing him of. So he says, listen, I hope that you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. Please put up with me because I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul's concerned with how easily deceived the church in Corinth is, and he's jealous for them and for their God's relationship with them and their relationship with God. Later on in chapter 11, verse 23, we read, he says, are they, talk about these super apostles, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this, he says. Look, I'm more. I've worked much harder, I've been in prison more frequently, I've been flogged more severely, I've been exposed to death again and again, five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea, I've been constantly on the move, I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger in the sea, danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches, who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now just go back and read that passage again, 2 Corinthians 11 from verse 23, and then you look at your 2020 and go, maybe I don't have it so bad. But the point that I'm wanting to make here isn't so much that you don't have it so bad and Paul had it worse. You know, Paul's busy talking about all these things, but it is out of this Context that this word from Jesus Christ is going to come to Paul. So his his legitimacy is in question. He says, Listen, actually, this is all the things that have happened to me. But one of the things that the super apostle said is, Listen, you don't have these amazing experiences and these visions that we have and that we're having, and therefore you're obviously not as spiritual and you're not as important. And so then Paul says, Listen. I've got, I don't want to go here, chapter 12, verse 1, but if we have to go into visions and revelations, well, I'll tell you about one. And then he doesn't even talk about himself. He kind of talks himself as, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. And so he has this vision. And in actual fact, it's so grand and so intense that he says at the end of verse 4 that it's, it contained things that no one is permitted to tell He's not actually supposed to talk about it, so he doesn't give any details, but he just says, listen, this is what happened. But but out of this incredible vision that Paul has, at the same time as the vision, we're told that uh, Paul is then given, um, a, he calls it a thorn in the flesh. Chapter 12, verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, A thorn was given me in my flesh, in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. So he's afflicted, he receives this vision that he can't talk about. He then receives this thorn, this affliction, that he also doesn't really talk about. He says in 12 verse 8 that he asked three times for it to be taken away, but the Lord didn't do it. It remained. Now we don't know what the thorn was. Anything that we say that the thorn was is merely speculation. There are a lot of things that it could have been. And I think the beauty of it and the why, why Paul leaves the vision blank, as it were, and the thorn blank, as it were, is because what, what is about to happen and what we're about to hear Jesus say to Paul is also something that Jesus comes and says to us. For each one of us, no doubt, will be given some kind of thorn in the flesh. Maybe it's physical, maybe it's mental, maybe it's outside, maybe it's a person. It could be any of those things. It could have been any of those things for Paul. Maybe it's a kind of physical disability. But what we do know about this thorn that Paul was uh, given is that Paul is sees it uh, as instructive. What, what the thorn one was isn't the point. Uh, the point is what God's purpose was for the thorn so here's two things that paul says very clearly about it number 1 it was given to him by the lord paul makes it abundantly clear and somewhat initially disturbing That the painful thorn that is given to him is given to him by the Lord so that he will not become conceited of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he's received, of the surpassing success of the ministry that he's doing. This is God's grace to him, to give him the thorn, because he is concerned about Paul's pride taking over, and Paul recognizes that. So so Paul understands that God gave him this thorn, uh, not Satan, and he understands that God's purpose was to keep Paul humble and dependent on Christ's power. Now, most of us can't identify with the sort of revelations that Paul was given, and when we read the kinds of suffering Paul experienced, it's probably safe to assume that our thorns don't pierce as deeply as his. But God's purpose in our thorns is going to be similar. It's going to be similar in this. God doesn't want sin to take root or get a foothold. Maybe it's pride that's we're becoming conceited, but maybe it's something else. Whatever your thorn is that God has given you, he has given it to you to slow you down, to get your attention, to keep you focused on him. You see, Paul was mindful that if God removed the thorn, he, he could have done that much more. You know, if he removed it, he would have had that much more energy, or if he had taken away the people that was making his ministry difficult, it could have been that much more successful. But it wasn't about that. That that wasn't the ultimate of the most important thing. For for the Lord, the most important thing was Paul and his salvation and his relationship with God. And so God gives him this thorn. He gave it to him so that he would not be fall into sin and become conceited. He prayed for deliverance, because that is what you're supposed to do with these things, and, and because it made him less effective for the Lord, but the Lord chose to let it remain. The second thing that's absolutely clear about this is that this thorn was used by Satan. Uh, Now, that's also shocking. Shocking to think that the Lord gave him the thorn. Shocking to think that the thorn that the Lord gave him, that the Lord was using in redeeming him and and this sort of redemptive uh, pain uh, that God gave to Paul, to destroy his pride and to deliver him was also used as a messenger of Satan. And and suddenly we find ourselves swimming in the really deep end of the theological pool. Uh, And I think the way that Paul says it is that he, he expects us to swim here as well. You see, Satan pierces us with a thorn from God. Does this trouble us? Did it trouble Paul? Well, no, Paul feels very, no need to qualify how God can give his child a redemptive gift of pain through an evil means. Because that phenomenon occurs time and time again throughout the Bible. Paul knows his Old Testament. He remembers Joseph, who said to his brothers, you meant this evil against me, but God meant it for good. Paul is uh, mindful uh, of the pain uh, that redemption brings, and it's seen most clearly in the death of Jesus Christ that it was given to us through the most evilest of means. Evilest? Is that a word? You don't understand what I'm saying. Our redemptive thorns may also be delivered by a satanic messenger, but we can know this, that it will only be one more way that God disarms the rulers and authorities and powers of this evil world and puts them to shame. Our God is so powerful and so wise in all things, works for the good of those who love him, and who have been called according to his purposes. Our God is so powerful and so wise that he can and is working 2020 and your life circumstances out for your ultimate good. Friends, we can trust in this kind of sovereignty because this is what fuels our joyful, confident, contentedness while experiencing the weakness and the weariness of our afflictions and our hardships and our sufferings and our difficulties. Now let me just, again, slowing right the way down, talk a little bit about grace. Grace, a word that is overused and underdefined. We tend to think about grace in the Ephesians 2, model of grace, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So grace is God's gift, unmerited, undeserved. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace means that we bring nothing to the table for our salvation. So grace, and and that's kind of the one-dimensional view that we tend to have of grace. Grace, God's gift of salvation that we didn't deserve, that He freely gives to us. And that's grace. Well, here are six different ways that the Bible uses grace. Uh, Grace that saves, that's the first one. He saved us, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, and called us to a holy, not life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. So Jesus Christ went to the cross to carry our sin, to bear our punishment, so we could experience radical, comprehensive, and complete forgiveness. That's grace that saves. Number two, grace that restores. God not only forgives us through His grace, but He welcomes us into a relationship with Him. He invites us into His family. Titus 3 verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Who becomes an heir? A family member is an heir. Thirdly, grace that brings God's presence. So this is like grace that restores. The grace of God's presence means that our Father, our Heavenly Father, is not distant, but that He is with us, that He is close to us. John chapter 1:14. the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father who came full of grace and truth. And he does that now through his Holy Spirit that dwells in us. So grace is God's presence with us, his presence in the world living in us. And it comes from the Father through the Son as he gives us the Spirit. Fourthly, we receive a grace that strengthens or a grace that enables us. Grace reaches us where we are and takes us where God wants us to be. Uh, God doesn't just give us salvation and leave us. It's grace both for pardon and grace for obedience. He doesn't leave us alone until eternity. He wants us to become more like His Son and work for the furtherance of God's kingdom here and now. So grace is three things. It's past, it's present, and it's future. It enables us in the past, present, and future. It strengthens us in the past and in the present and in the future. So Hebrews 4.16, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Why? His throne of grace we can come to so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Uh, that means that suffering and trials, which are reality of this life, uh, grace is there to strengthen us and those. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse sixteen. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. He loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. And through that grace, he is encouraging our hearts and strengthening us in every good deed and every good word. Fifthly, grace brings uh, freedom. Uh, God's grace delivers. Uh, It takes us from being sin addicts and it sets us free. So Titus 2 verse 11, the grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation for all people and it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It brings us freedom from sin, because the grace of God has appeared and brought salvation. It teaches and trains us to say no to that sin and what was ungodly, and yes to the things that God loves and that honor God. Finally, God's grace is the grace that brings us to completion, There will be a day where we will be fully restored and things will be as they were meant to be and that happens by God's grace. 1 Peter 1 verse 13, Therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Grace paused. Grace present and grace in the future. Grace is so much more than just God's gift of salvation. Uh, Grace is the gift of God himself to us. Listen to what David says in Psalm 16. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Or Asaph who in Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Or Paul in Philippians, uh, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. So the greatest good is God himself, knowing God in the person of Jesus Christ, knowing him and His grace and His presence in our life in that kind of way. Friends, this is a part one of two kind of sermon. We're going to come back next week to Paul and 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and unpack more of what it means where Jesus says to Paul that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. But where I want to leave us today is where do you find grace? You know, it can be incredibly frustrating to be hearing about this, um, to be knowing that that grace is available to you. To be hang, hang on, the grace that saved me. Actually, there's more grace to come. You know, great, it's kind of like uh, a river. Maybe that's a, a helpful way of thinking about it. You, you got these this river of God's promises uh, coming towards you, coming down the mountain as you're, as you're climbing up, uh, as you're on your way homeward bound to heaven. Uh, God's promises keep coming to you. And and, and as they flow to you, you look behind you and there's just this reservoir full of God's grace uh, that you've experienced in your life. Uh, But as you carry on putting one foot in front of the other, you don't go back down to the reservoir to fill yourself up with past grace. No, God's grace keeps flowing down the mountain, it keeps coming towards you and you keep receiving it and you keep experiencing it and you keep on having it afresh. If you humbly admit that you need help, you'll become excited about the different variations of grace that God provides you coming down that stream of the mountain, coming down from heaven, those promises that keep coming, that, that future grace that keeps sustaining you in the presence and keeps your eyes fixed on Jesus. Carrying on with that kind of water illustration is that, you know, if, if you want to have a shower and get yourself clean, you got to stand under the shower head and get wet. you got to stand under the common fountains of God's grace. You've got to pursue the resources of God's grace. Paul went to God and said, "God, take the storm from me. Take the storm from me. Take the storm from me." And God's response, Jesus' response was, "Paul, my grace is sufficient for you." Those common resources of grace being part of a uh, fellowship and community around God's word, being in God's word, uh, sharing uh, with one another uh, where you're experiencing that grace or where you're needing that grace, giving God thanks, seeking the counsel of uh, older, uh, more mature Christians. If you want to get soaked in in the grace of God, you got to stand under the fountain of the grace of God and trust that He will send the water. you got to jump into the river, the streams that are coming down the mountain of future grace, and expect that God is going to carry on sending those promises. Because of what He's done in the past, because of Jesus, they're still coming. He's still going to give it. At the end of this section in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 10, Paul ends it all off by saying, For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weakness. I wonder if that's something that you could say that you're content with weakness. And he goes on, he's content with weakness and hardships and calamities. I don't know, that sounds like 2020 to me. And then he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? because Jesus' grace is sufficient for you and it keeps on coming and it's on tap and it comes at just the right time and in just the right way when you need it most so that you can say that this is all of God. Would you go with me and let's pray. Our Lord God, open our minds to what your grace is. Blow it up so that we can see it in all of its beauty and understand it in all of its magnitude, so that we too can hear these words of Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you. Father, may we take those to heart, and may we experience past, present, and future grace in all new ways, so that we will be strengthened in our weakness with your strength and with your power, so that you get the glory in our lives, and the and we are put on display for all around us to see the worth and the wonder of Jesus our Savior. And we ask this in his name. Amen.